Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Christina Ray is the breathwork queen. We get into that on the pod, and she is also two and a half years sober. And what she's putting out in the universe is just as powerful as her story. And by the way, this woman is an angel. We had some serious uh, technical difficulties. And uh, I, I think at one point she probably thought we were playing a practical joke on her. But she, uh, she stayed just so serene and calm. And uh, you could tell this is somebody that learns how to dance in the rain and doesn't wait for the storm to pass. And she shares us, shares with us, five, four, three, two, one. And she shares with us how she does that. Um, I got all the links to all the ways that she's helping people now in the show notes. But uh, this is an incredible conversation with somebody who is uh, putting a lot of good out in there into the universe. But first, big bro, Kevin Souza. Let's do it. You say that, you know, we were just talking offline about being able to share and inspire. And you mentioned something. I've heard you mention this, that when you found meaning in your early portion of recovery, it was one of those moments where you were like, okay, like I, I, I can do this. Yeah. Well, uh, I think there came a point in my life where I just realized that I mattered because throughout my addiction and many points in my, my life when I was depressed, I really didn't feel like I mattered. And um, I think that's where a lot of people uh, end up. We feel like we are not really making an impact in this world. We don't really see a purpose in our lives. We don't really see meaning in our lives. And when you're at that point where you don't really matter, where you feel like you don't really matter, then it's really easy for you to abuse yourself. It's really easy for you to abuse others, um, you know, to to enter that toxic cycle. Because if you don't feel like you really matter, then what does it all matter? You yeah. know. And so I had I had a death wish. I used to say that I was like, I don't care. Like mix the drugs, mix the alcohol, mix it all together, the ups, the downs, because I wanted to die. I was like, I'm going to die anyways before I'm 25. Um, because I I didn't see the purpose in my life. I really hadn't connected to that greater purpose, and I didn't realize that even if I had you know, even if you just impact one person, like your life actually matters. Yeah. You know, that's truly enough. Mm-hmm. I, so I struggle. I'm, I'm on a big like self-worth um, discovery, I would say. Like, you know, I do my thing with 12, 12 step and I also work with a therapist now. And it's like I, I'm constantly reminded of just how important that is, the, the value um, that we can have, regardless of it's yourself, what you do with healing. Um, or, or what I'm doing, um, even if it's just totally just one person you come in contact with, like you said, it's super meaningful and super valuable. I want to get back to your story and why you are so valuable today. You grew up, you grew up in Mexico for a little bit, right? And then you moved to Dallas at a, at a really young age. What was that like? Do you remember that transition? 
Yeah, so I grew up in Mexico, uh, in Chihuahua, Mexico, until I was about six years old, and then we moved to Dallas, Texas. I do remember the transition because it was quite traumatic. It's quite intense to leave um, all my family in Mexico and to come to the U.S. I was actually there was parts of it that I really loved, uh, and then there was parts you know that I really hated. I really missed my family. We in, in Mexico we had really big family meets every week. I had um, aunts, uncles, cousins. And so we would all come together. It was a lot more like slow paced lifestyle. And so it became like a much smaller um, family unit. And uh, we didn't have as much like family meals. We did a lot of fast food, which I actually loved, but <laughs> gained a lot of weight, uh, a lot of McDonald's. And um, it was like all of a sudden, like the fast paced world of like capitalism and all this beautiful things that the U.S. has to offer, but that can be a little bit shocking um, when you're not used to it and uh, had to learn English. and. It was um, interesting. I mean, I'm very grateful for the experience, but at the same time, I think it created something within myself where I felt a little bit lost. Yeah. All of a sudden, I didn't really feel like I fit in here. And then when I would go back to Mexico, all of a sudden, I didn't really fit in there anymore. Even there, when I would speak Spanish, they started to tell me that I had an accent, uh, American accent in my Spanish. And then here, I didn't really like fully feel like I was an American. And so I sort of lived in this in-between and I created a story within my head that I recognize now was sort of this, this story that I was lost. The fact that you almost had like a full immersion into the United States, part of it you liked, a lot of McDonald's, um, you liked, you know, being in America, but there were also things that, you know, that's a tough, that's a tough adjustment for a young kid. I mean, you're not only moving, you lose your, like you said, you had all this family you love being around, but you also kind of lost, um, you said you kind of felt lost, right? Like, how did you start at an early age? How did you start to cope with that? Yeah, I think, you know, we create these stories and programs in our minds from a young age. And one of those for me became that I didn't really belong anywhere. So that became kind of something that played out in my life since I was young. I didn't really fit in. I didn't really belong. I felt like an outsider. Um, didn't belong here. Didn't belong there. Um, and the way that I coped was really by wearing a lot of masks. I got really good at wearing a lot of masks and kind of um, fitting the mold of different places. And I think one of the things that eventually helped me put on those masks or actually what relieved me of the mask, because it, it, it takes a lot of work to, to be constantly changing the mask. So like you go to one place, one group of friends, and you act a certain way so you can fit in there. And then, you know, go hang out with the family, and then you act a certain way, and you put that mask on. And then you go back to Mexico, and then you put this mask on. Yeah. And it's a lot of work, and it gets very, very tiring. And so eventually, like the first time that I tried alcohol, I was like, all the masks come off, and you finally get to just be yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I remember being just like, wow, like, I'm so happy. <laughs> I was just overjoyed and just happy because I was like relieved and just like, I felt like this big weight had come off and I could just be myself and I was just crazy and whatever wild. And I didn't care. I stopped caring what people thought of me. I stopped caring about fitting in. I stopped, I felt like I belonged yeah. just to do whatever I was doing. And so I was like, wow, this is great. <laughs> you know, this is amazing. Uh, and I just forgot about everything, all the problems, all the things. And so I think that's, you know, when you know that it's, it's dangerous. Um, and so that was kind of, one of the reasons that I, I, I when did drink you, it definitely one of the 
the ways that I coped. When did you start to drink? You said you mentioned like around around like middle school, I guess. And your parent one thing we skipped over because I um, I'm yeah. bouncing all around is your parents split up when you when mm-hmm. you were younger, and that's impactful for uh, any person, but especially a, a young kid. How did you see yourself like dealing with that? And uh, you know, you, caretaker personalities can pop up, and people can try to make everybody around them happy because shit's awkward and, 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 and tough. Yeah. Yeah. My parents, they divorced pretty soon after I came here. So I was still young, six or seven. And I think as a little girl, I took a lot of like blame for that. And I really felt like it was my fault and my dad sort of like left the house and I sort of felt like he left me, like I had done something wrong. I think I took, again, created some sort of story in my head as we do as children. And I felt a lot of, um, yeah, just a lot of negative emotions from, from their separation, a lot of blame that I took on for myself. And my mom was really, really sad. And she went to her own mental health issues and depression. And as the baby of the family, I had an older brother. I wanted to make everyone happy and make everyone feel better. As you said, like the caretaker. Yeah. So that's when my caretaker actually role began and that continued for the rest of my life. Like I'm still very much a caretaker. Yeah. I've learned how to set better boundaries with it because it sort of took over my life. And in my relationships, I continued to look for people that needed me, that needed my help that yeah. I wanted to fix. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it can definitely become very unhealthy, but it started when I was young and I was constantly trying to just make everyone better. And I was, I would, my mom, she would try to hide from us, um, you know, to conceal her sadness, but she would be in her bathroom crying. And I would write these little notes to her and slip them under the door. No um, way. Yeah. Pretending like she wasn't going to know as me. So I would like slip it under the door, you know, like hearts and like, as if she, if she would think it was like from an angel or something. <laughs> so I would like slip it under the door and I would run away. Um, but yeah, she's, we, we have a really good relationship now and she's always so grateful. And she remembers those little notes. They really like, you know, made the world for her. How, how could you how could you forget but then you start to rebel a little bit yes I, at a certain point i got tired of being the caretaker and went through a rebellious phase i think as many of us do especially when we're teenagers yeah. so I, I felt really angry and i just started to like hate everyone <laughs> And, and that's and, and and you started to drink around <laughs> around that time, and you mentioned like that's when you found that comfort yeah. zone. Yeah, and again, like I had always been feeling really lost and not belonging, and in that moment when I started to drink, and I sort of felt like I found my family, like my tribe, it was other people who were engaging in um, drinking and drugs, and uh, we all kind of came together in that. And I was like, oh wow, these are like my people, and we were all kind of rebelling together. Like we all hated our parents, we all like hated our situation. We had all been through all. all our own trauma um and we like trauma bonded we came together and <laughs> we had our own little like fucked up sorry effed up I you know you go ahead you say that yeah effed up family <laughs> um and, and yeah and so that's kind of when it began um in the teenage years in in the rebellious years and i got um a boyfriend who was a drug dealer who was like six years older than me um who had a house for us to party at and and then the downward spiral began. Yeah. And yeah. You, you mentioned part of like your high school experiences, like socially you, you had some trouble, you know, and that's like, can have a profound impact on, on somebody. Like you mentioned, you told the story I heard when like this, the volleyball team goes to your house and, and toilet papers and you can see them 
And it's hard for people to, when you see somebody like you now, it's like, wait a minute, she was bullied. It's like, yeah, she was. And like, that's, you don't know. It's almost like, like the people that walk among us that are addicts and alcoholics, like you don't know unless they're going to tell you about it and be vulnerable, you know, which makes a lot of times the people that are suffering from addiction or suffering from, you know, mental abuse or bullying, like they feel alone. But like when, yeah. when, when, when you open up and tell your story about, you know, you're, you're, you're getting bullied um, and then you start to drink and you start to use um, and then, but you still manage, I got to, this is fascinating. You said like, you're getting all these bag, well, you're getting in trouble and then you get into SMU. So clearly you were doing a good job. Clearly you were, you were beyond functional in the classroom at least. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about my use, and I think for many people actually, is that they have this idea of what an addict and alcoholic looks like, that it's somebody that's using every day, that is, you know, on the floor, blackout drunk every day. It's like just completely not functional. And in my use, I was always really high function. And so from the outside, like I was, like I said, I was since a little girl, really good at putting on math. So I always looked like I was doing really well. And, um, you know, there came at one point where I started doing really bad in classes, but then I went to the psychiatrist and then I got a bunch of uh, medications. So I was on a bunch of Adderall. I was on, they gave me Adderall, they gave me Lonapin, they gave me Ambien, they gave me Vivance, they gave me all these different things to make myself function. And you um, did, and you said you got A's. And then uh, I did, and then I got straight A's, um, <laughs> and I was doing even better. But then I was going even crazier because they, those pills, they don't address the deeper wounds. And that's what was really going on with me is I had all of this trauma and these things that I was carrying from younger years because I was bullied because the parents would, because I came here, you know, from, from Mexico because I was feeling lost because I had sexual trauma because I had all these things that had happened to me. So I went with, to the psychiatrist, told them this and they were like, wow, yeah, you, you are depressed because you've been through shit. Here's pills. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like 15 minute consultation. Here's a bunch <laughs> of like hundreds of milligrams of pills. And then I took everything and then I'm like straight A's, you know, like yeah. doing amazing. Uh, and then at night I like can't sleep and literally have to drink myself just to go to sleep. Um, and then I end up just completely, completely losing it after that. I, so, want, I want to touch on the fact, that, and you you brought it up before. It sucks bringing it up, but I think it can be helpful. You, you mentioned you were you were raped, right? So you got the sexual abuse in there, and you didn't yeah. get sober for a while after that. Like I don't, some I could never wrap my mind around what that's like, right? I'm not going to pretend to, but I can ask you, like, how was it, like, on the other side of that? Like, like how did you work through that? Well, it happened to me when I was a teenager. When I was about 15 and I didn't even really recognize what had happened when it did. And I even, I was actually unconscious um, partly conscious, partly unconscious. And, and my brain, you know, the way the brain works sometimes when it's overwhelmed with things like this, it just stores it. And that's actually what I came to learn really is PTSD. You know, the brain is like kind of like storing things that you're too not emotionally ready to deal with. Um, so for me, it was too much and I didn't even really realize that I had been raped. And, um, it wasn't until many years later that I was even able to say that I had been raped because I was so like ashamed and felt guilt and felt like it was actually my fault. I'm like, well, I went to the party. I took the pill. I wore this thing. I did that. And I was passed out. So, you know, was it really rape? Um, and it's, it's been 
just years and years of releasing other people come out, other people tell their story that I realized like, oh, you know, actually yeah. I was, I was raped, you know, that actually happened to me. And even saying it, it's, it's, it feels uncomfortable and like shame and guilt and all these things come up. And I, I had even forgiven the person that did that to me, but I had not forgiven myself. Wow. And so it's like, it's crazy that I was able to forgive him before I was even able to forgive myself. Were you just, a, were you a tough kid growing up in a tough family where it was kind of like, I need to just get through this? Cause it sounds like, honestly, the, if there was one thing you had growing up among all this, and it was a lot of things, because I, I met, again, I mentioned you got good grades, you got into SMU, you wore these masks, but it sounds like you were all like in an unhealthy way accountable. Like that's not accountability, that's insanity, but it's shame, right? And it's like, the, oh, I, I wore this, I took this. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, like at what point do you come through and say that was, no, that was totally fucked up? Yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's the family. I think that's just like the culture. You know, I think that's what media has taught us as women too. Like that's what it was before. And I think there is a big shift and a big awakening that's coming. I, my family and my mom, loves me like i was in a family that was with a lot of love but there definitely was a lot of independence um and i was grown like i i was raised to just be very very independent um my father wasn't really a big part of my life and i think in many ways i was always looking to fill that within myself in unhealthy ways it ended up being but i think the biggest thing really is that the culture, you know, culture around, around women, we have been a bit disempowered in this world. And it takes seeing other women stand up, tell their story and share for you to feel safe to then share your story, to feel empowered, to then say, wait, actually, this is what happened to me. Because there are so many people out there that will take your power away. And even if you try to stand up and say what's happened, they're like, no, well, you were drunk, or you were this, or you were that, you know, and so when that's, that's scary because it's really vulnerable to, to share what has happened to you. And if somebody's going to try to accuse you of lying, it's, it's frightening. And so it's like a big awakening of the sisterhood of women supporting each other of, of just coming back into our power. And I think it's been decades really, because we're coming from a place where women really didn't have, you know, we're still healing from a place where women didn't have rights, where women have. It wasn't that long. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. The women couldn't yeah. vote. I mean, it's like, it's no, kind of crazy. We're, we're still healing, yeah. you know? And, um, and yeah, like where women couldn't work, we're, we're equal women, pay is still an issue. Yeah. I mean, like it's or all, men, yeah, exactly. It's very it's real still an issue. It, it is. Yeah. And there's still people that are in denial about that, but it actually is still very much a part of this world. And, uh, so yeah, so it's, it's just, it's a process and, the important thing is like the more that we share, the more that we support each other, the better it is for everyone else. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that with me. It's all, I, I don't, as, as a guy, I really don't know how to ask that, but I know it's a big part of your story and I know it can help people. So yeah. I do appreciate it. Yeah. And you know, something that has helped me so much is breath work really to, to, to release the emotions and the toxic emotional residue that was stuck in my body after that that has been a really, really big part of my healing journey, which is why I now facilitate breath work, breath work and breath work journeys for people. Because after that, you can definitely do therapy and become, first of all, become aware, aware that I had PTSD was the first step, aware that I had been through that. But then it's like, what do I do now with all this emotions and stuff that's stuck in my body and, and the trauma? So breath work gave me that safe space to actually release a lot of the emotions without having to relive it, without even having to talk about it, you're able to go in there and to get out of that 
traumatic response because after experiencing something like that, we often get stuck in a traumatic stress response. But with the breath work, you're able to regulate your nervous system again to come back in and to release all of those emotions, all of that thing that's been stuck in there to revisit that trauma in a safe way. And you're not taking all these pills and shit, um, you know, like. And the pills are gone. Yeah. yeah. So, you, and we're going to link all your stuff. Like, we'll put it in the show notes and keep because you can help people. You can walk them through this. Um, yeah. You're, you're doing it now. But back to your story, you know, as things start to come unglued for you, you decide to go off all the meds, which is insane, but you're trying to do the right thing, you know? And so your body struggles responding to that. Um, you go off the meds and then you start to have seizures. I stopped taking the, the medications at one point um, and just kind of went cold turkey. I'm like, oh, I'm just done with it. And I really didn't know enough. And in that way, I feel like I should have been given more information from the doctor. Like they were a bit negligent. I prescribed all these things. And so I just stopped it. And after like two or three days of just cold turkey, I had a seizure. The first one, the first seizure was on a treadmill. So I had that first seat. Yeah, I love that. You said you, you had a Red Bull and you hopped on the treadmill. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's pretty scary. Like, I'll check the Red Bulls. I was in college at the time, so I'm like, okay. First, I had Red Bull, and I got in the treadmill, which is like, oh, my God. You know, like, that's <laughs> um, so, so then I get on the treadmill, and then I had a seizure, and that was the first one. And I wake up, and it was in the hospital, and I was in the hospital for a couple of days because I had another seizure that was there. And my brain basically was just going into an extreme withdrawal from uh, all of the medications, particularly was actually the benzos and the, the clonopin that I was taking and I guess the alcohol. And so uh, the doctor came in and told me that I need to go to rehab. I was looking at him like he was crazy. And then you moved to Los Angeles. Uh, farther away from my parents, further away from, you know, people I knew. And and then I just went actually deeper into my addiction and started doing even more drugs and stayed on actually the pills and kept having more seizures for the next like year or so. And and um, and then it just got really bad. And I hit a really, really low point in my depression. Um, at one point, I, I really was at a point where I was just ready to die. And I didn't care. I really didn't care. I even... Um, you know, I had a drug dealer out there, and at one point, I remember I asked the drug dealer for heroin, and he was like, "You're too intense for me now. Like, I don't even know where to get heroin." <laughs> I was thinking that in my head. I at that point, I was so depressed, and I just I realized, like, I I thought that that's how I wanted to die, just through drugs. I was like, I just want to be feeling like really good, and I would just like to die. And so the drug dealer told me, like, thank God that he couldn't have access to that. And, you know, the universe, God, angels are just watching out for me. But yeah, so it was just, it was my lowest point. Um, and then at, at some point, I don't know, I, I had another seizure and something within me just like switched and I woke up and I just looked at myself and it was like divine intervention. And I felt like I was finally shook. Well, I, I, one of the things you mentioned um, is that and I love this because for me, it was like when I was like really screwed up and, uh, you know, I was, everybody thought I was hopeless. I, I didn't even know I had a death wish, but I, I have a heart problem um, pretty bad. And I was I'm doing cocaine, clonopin, alcohol all the time and pretty much like, you know, a death with just like no regard for my health and life. And, uh, but I went to a couple meetings and I kind of, there was something there where it was in my back pocket, like, wow, 
this thing works, this stuff works, you know? And you mentioned you had an experience with yoga, which exposed you to a whole different group of people and a whole different energy. And you started to kind of have those situations where you're doing yoga and, and the emotions just kind of burst to the surface, whether it's like a pose you're doing that triggers a certain emotion that releases a certain body part. And so you're sort of coming to, I guess, in a sense, like, wow, okay, like there's something here in this, in what I'm doing, like in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. I started doing uh, yoga and then I, I was convinced by one of the girls to do a yoga teacher training. So I did a yoga teacher training with not really an intention of becoming a yoga teacher, just to do something uh, with myself. And so I did that and that was committing entire weekends to, to yoga. And then I became friends with this group of people who were just committing their weekend to yoga for like two months. And then I realized that there was good people out there because when you're in addiction, when you're, you're, you're using, you sort of hang out with the same people all the time, party people, people that are like you, yeah. and you sort of forget that there's other people out there that not everybody's like that. And so I realized again, I was like, wow, there's people out there who are not drinking every weekend, who are not doing this all the time, who are doing things with their life, who are high vibe, high energy. And then that was the first realization. And then as I was doing the yoga also, I would have moments where I would be in a pose and all of a sudden I would start crying or we have different emotions that are in different parts of our body. And I started to, to connect with the breath as well because yoga is a lot about breathing. So different emotions started to come out, different things started to open up. And I think that was really, that was like 10 years ago. That was the beginning, beginning yeah. of the journey. Yeah. Healing. And what's what's going on with you professionally at this time? Are you still in California and you're, you're, you're working towards being a yoga instructor, like what did you have? Cause I didn't really have any goals. Like I had these things that I would talk about doing, but I, like the drugs and the alcohol completely, uh, I just held me from being who my, my anywhere near my potential. Yeah. I, I had gone back to get another degree. So I was, so you graduated from SMU. I graduated from SMU okay. and I went, to, uh, and I was doing like, uh, I was working, I, was as an assistant at one point. I just got a lot of different jobs. I was the worst assistant known to man out of, out of school. I was. I made this guy's life a living hell. Yeah, yeah I was an assistant at a, a design firm, and then I went back to uh, to school to um, to get another degree in in a more creative space at, at the Fashion Institute. Um, and but in LA, I was living with a guy I was dating. And that's why I had moved there. That was like my motivation. So I was kind of consumed by him. Caretaker. Yeah. So I was like taking care of him and he he was, you know, doing his thing, his job, his family was out there. So I was just, just kind of focused on him and his friends and his life. And he also did drugs. So we would just do drugs together and yeah. party. And, um, and I didn't really have any big goals. Like I just was kind of figuring it out. And at one point I started working in a wheat shop. <laughs> um, it's like 10 hour shifts. One of the things you said, by the way, you mentioned, because we're laughing because some of this stuff was fun, right? And some of it wasn't all, I mean, that's sort of the problem with it. Um, but you, you you mentioned that, you know, like the drugs almost like they helped you mask so many emotions. Like they almost like you needed them. And you look back even now with this healthy mind, body and spirit. And you're like, you know, maybe they did serve me a purpose for a little while. Maybe they actually kept me from from taking my own life. Yeah. And that's what I always say. Like, I'm really grateful for every part of the journey. It was all necessary. 
Yeah. I feel like I can I can help people who are on that path. I can relate to all sorts of people because I've literally been in every situation. Yeah. Um, you know, from waking up on the street, <laughs> no, no shoes, no purse, to to uh, dining in a fancy restaurant, you know, getting expensive wine. Like, like I feel like I've been in all facets, and um, and so I'm grateful for all of it and every experience. And I do feel like I was the drugs. They did help me at that time. It's what I needed at that time. Um, it was my path. There are things that that I guess that they they showed me. It's, it's it's the lessons that I came here to learn in this lifetime. So I think that I wouldn't change anything in my life. I don't have any regrets. So you you end up and part of your path was like getting to the point where you are now, and you started to go to an outpatient rehab, and then things really started to change for you what starts to happen because you end up back in an, in another rehab right and like you but but at some point it takes like what what happens yeah i decided to go to an outpatient and that was when i stopped taking all the pills finally so that was um the beginning of my sober sober journey yeah i was sober for a little bit after that completely but then i started drinking again and actually um I never actually stopped smoking weed at that time. And so weed, I think, for me at that time was really, really helpful. Because it was really hard to get off of all the medications that I had been on. Uh, the anti-anxiety medication, the sleep medication, the ADD medication. So what I did was just smoke a lot of weed. Really. And it really helped me at that time. And now I don't smoke any weed. I haven't smoked in a really long time. But at that time, it's something that really helped me in the transition. So I'm actually very grateful for that. And there was a lot of weed in California, so it was not that hard to get. It was actually legal, you know, so yeah. I had a prescription. And, uh, I mean, I had a prescription for all the medications as well, but yeah, it was a very um, a challenging time. And um, that coming together in, in groups in the outpatient, I think, was really, really helpful. So we would meet three times a week in community, and I think it was so beautiful to see other people. Again, I think community has been one of the most important things. So like yoga was seeing all those people and coming together, finding that community, seeing what they were doing, being inspired by them. And then when I did the outpatient, we would meet three times a week for three hours and then seeing all these people on similar journeys, being vulnerable, sharing their stories. But I think one of the most important things really healing yourself and recovery and any, any kind of healing is coming together in community. As humans, we need community. And when we're trying to heal, we need community. We need to hear other people's stories. We need to share our story. And I think that it's all those little times that it starts to just slowly change you. And part of my journey, I remember I was at a recovery house. I just left a, a, a treatment center. And I asked this therapist, I was like, you know, I said, why is this working? I said, it's starting to work for me. And she said, the way she put it, was, she's like, it's, there's uh, something very tribal about it. You know, gathering together, sitting around. Like this, it's pretty basic, dude, is what you were saying. Like you're actually being vulnerable with other people, showing your emotions and it's making you feel better because they are sharing some of the same emotions you have. And that community for me early on in recovery, it was like, that was like my higher power, you know, like the community. Like I, I, I was like, okay, this is like, I'm feeling a different way, you know? And, and so you back to you, you start to feel a different way. And what starts to really like, what do you start to do out in society and into the world to kind of, we talked at the very beginning of this, 
before our adventures technically, which we're still dealing with. And I, again, I so appreciate you fragging in there. <laughs> Seriously, you are the angel your mom said you are. Um, like you're going through all this stuff, but you're finding that meaning. How are you finding it out there in society that, that gives you pretty much the wings to continue on your sober journey and your journey to help others? I think nature was the first the first, it was just one of the things that really started to impact me. And to, I, I started to develop a, a bigger relationship with nature when I was living in California. Started going on hikes, started going over to the beach. And then eventually I went on a retreat. I went to Mexico and I was the first real big work I had done. So I went on a retreat in Mexico and spent a lot of time in nature while I was there and reflecting, doing yoga, being with other women, women's retreat. And, um, and then I just realized that I wanted to do something with nature and I learned about sustainability. There's a lot of, uh, sustainability, uh, just a lot of sustainable movements in California. And I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't really available when I lived in Texas. People don't really care about that as much, care about the planet. It became really interesting to me. And after I came back from the retreat, Within literally two days, something had shifted within me. I was just ready. It's like being around other women, being in nature. I felt all of a sudden just like empowered. Like I was using, I used that energy. I came back and within two days, I moved out of my house. I moved into a little Airbnb in the mountains. So you're out, so you're out of this relationship with the guy who was doing yeah, drugs. Yeah. And I've been in there for six years in a relationship with him. And I just said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go. Like, I feel like if I stay here, I'm going to die. I can't be with you anymore. Where did he do? What did he do? He was just in shock. Yeah. But I think the most shocking thing of it all is I just, I literally never saw him again. I was just like, goodbye. And, and that was it. Now that is, how how empowering is that? If you could share that with other people and other women, because like I had something like that where I was in a bad relationship and I was like 14 days sober and I got out of it because I knew I had to. And it was the first real esteemable thing I did in sobriety. And yeah. it felt really, really good. And she didn't really, I mean, she moved on, right? Like, that's what happens. Like, she moved on. Everybody was okay. There was no total eruption. Um, and I felt really good about that. I was like, oh, I can do these hard things and I can do them sober and I can continue on a positive journey. Was that sort of your experience there? And I think each thing that you do, you sort of start to build more trust with yourself, you know? And when you don't do those things, when there's something inside of you that's saying, oh, maybe you shouldn't be in this relationship or maybe you shouldn't be doing this or doing that. That's when you start to lose the trust with yourself, you know? And so each hard thing that you do, you're just building more and more trust with yourself. And and that's where we want to be. We want to be that place where we really trust ourselves. And when you do something like that, when you leave the relationship, when you make those choices, when you choose yourself over someone else, when you choose yourself over the alcohol or whatever, you, start, you build more trust. You believe in yourself more. You build more power. And so it just starts to make you a stronger and stronger person. So you you uh, described yourself as somebody who you thought was never going to get married. And now here you are at the top of this. We talked about you've been married for over a year. You just celebrated an anniversary. How do you get to the place where you're able to fall in love and find yourself in a healthy relationship after, which most addicts can relate to, right? Alcoholics, whatever, people that live with trauma, toxic relationship after toxic relationship. How do you break that cycle for people that don't know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's a continuous journey and you can never predict what's going to come next. And 
the healing journey, it's it's always teaching you things. Every day you're going to learn new things about yourself. So we have actually, in my relationship, uh, decided to separate. Oh, wow. By the way, you're so awesome for telling me that. I'm sorry to bring it up. Or, yeah. Well, I think it's great. And I think I have to share and be honest because the most beautiful thing about the separation is that it's really peaceful. And that's what has started to happen as you start to build that trust with yourself. Yeah. And you have to follow your truth. We came together. We did get married. We've been together for a long time. But then we realized that we actually want different things. And I am very honest with myself. And I just realized, you know, we couldn't be together anymore. So I think that in sobriety, there's only an option to be honest, really. You can't run away, yeah. you know? And so the more healing work you do, um, the more honest that you will become and the more trust you will build with yourself. And I'm only about, uh, you know, two and a half years sober. And when I got married, I was actually just one year sober. And I realized that I'm a different person, actually, at two and a half years sober, that I was at one year sober. And that has been, you know, I'm a different person than I was six months ago sober. And so that has been something really interesting for my relationship because we actually changed and we moved a little bit in different directions. Like, I'm a really different person than I was when we first came together, even when I first, when we got married a year ago, which people would be like, oh my God, you've only been married for a year. But it's like, actually, I was a completely different person a year ago. Yeah. That people need to, to know is that, there's a reason that, you know, in sobriety in the first couple of years, you actually should also take your time because we are constantly changing and getting to know ourselves. And the person that I was at one year sober is, it's not the person you're going to be at two years sober. You're still discovering yourself and figuring it out. Yeah. Well, you're being honest right now. I appreciate it. Uh, you very easily could have just gone along with the game plan. Um, for somebody, that's an opportunity for me to ask, and then we're going to get into all the stuff you're doing today and where people can find you. When something like that happens, a, ma a major thing in your life, who do you, what do you do to continue to cope in a healthy way? Remember, we threw away all the pills. We're not, we're, we're totally, you know, we are in sync and we're finding healthy ways to go through stuff and process shit. How do you, how do you, how are you managing with something like that? Because, you know, love is hard and it's, you're, you you know, like matters of the heart are hard and matters of the heart will lead people to drink and use again. I mean, you, I hear that all the time in recovery. So how are you coping with you know, it doesn't matter who made the decision or how it went down. It's 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 a big deal. How are you coping with that? Yeah, it doesn't matter how peaceful the separation is. It's still very painful. And when I left the relationship, the, the previous one that I was in for six years, the first thing I did was drink, and I got blackout drunk even in that little Airbnb in, Mal in Malibu in the mountains, and I did for like ten days and just drink. And so I thought about that when I separated recently, three months ago, we separated because I was in so much pain. I was like, wow, like last time I felt like this, I drank like a full bottle of wine and I can't do that this time. I won't do that this time. So what do I do? Sometimes there's really just nothing to be done, but just to feel the pain and just to sit with it and just to be a human and to actually experience what it is to be human, which is just to feel our emotions and cry. So I just cried. I let myself just cry. I cried, I felt my emotions, and I let it just move through me. I wrote, I journaled a lot, and then I came back to my breath and did a lot of breath work. And then I came back to my community. I have connected with a lot of really amazing women and have built some really strong friendships. I don't bring a lot of people into my life anymore, but the people that I do have, very, very quality friends. So I reached out to them. I didn't isolate. 
I sent them all messages, a lot of voice notes back, a lot of phone calls and connected. Um, and then that was it. You know, I just took it day by day knowing that I was going to be okay. And just allowed myself to feel. I appreciate you saying that. My brother passed away this summer and he was a therapist and he was a sober guy. And, uh, he also was a songwriter and, and, you know, he talked about, he would be like, dude, you just got to let it, let it crash over you. You've got to be still and just, and, and, and hurt and feel, you know, cause I don't want to feel when stuff that, that happens that I don't, I don't like the way I feel. What can I do to get out of this feeling? That's my first thought. And I appreciate you saying that because it really is, you're echoing the sentiments that he left me with is like, you just gotta, the only way is through and sometimes through is just sitting there. Try to push it away. It's only going to be worse later. Yeah. Because then it gets pushed down. Eventually it will explode. So the best way is just let it, let it come, let it come through, feel it. Because if you push it down, eventually it will manifest, it will explode. And I had one therapist tell me one time, was when I used to really suppress my emotions. And she was like, I feel like you are like a um, a pot of boiling water. At a certain point, you know, it's going to just explode. The lid is going to come off. Like, that's kind of like how it is. We push down our emotions like a pot of boiling water, you know, eventually. It just, oh, when we allow ourselves to just feel, it's very painful. It sucks. But there's nowhere to run sometimes. And it's actually just part of being a human. And when you just appreciate the emotions, even you're like, wow, how beautiful is it? That I'm a human, that I've been hurt, that I opened up, that I loved, and that now I get to feel the pain of the heartbreak as well. Well, all, all of this stuff now you're talking about, your ability to process all this, and you're helping other people now. How did you find your way onto this journey to be able to be a source where the sunlight of the spirit goes through you and into other other people, um, primarily women, from what I've seen? Um, what exactly led you to that, you know, to really tap into that? Well, I feel like I've always been just someone that people go to for help. I feel like I've always had a great influence on people. I didn't always use my power for good. I've always, um, you know, I've been able to really motivate and influence people. Before I used it to motivate people in a bad way. Mm. Now I've realized that I want to use my power for good to really help people. When I, um, in the beginning of my my career launching a business, I, I wanted to help the planet. And then there came a point where I wanted to continue helping the planet, but I just felt really called to just help people. And I knew that somehow just connected to my purpose that I was just meant to help people. I started volunteering when I lived in New York. Um, I spent time volunteering. I was uh, teaching some uh, adult immigrants. Um, I connected with the Mexican consulate there, started doing some teaching. I was teaching English to adult immigrants and just a small impact of just helping them that way. And then I started teaching some English in high schools. And uh, since I've moved here in Miami, and I've been doing some other volunteer work, but I realized I just like helping people, like being there, um, you know, helping people face to face. And that's when I realized that I wanted to, um, to actually develop a business around that and a lot of what has helped me as well in my healing journey, like when I went to that retreat and I was around women, connecting with, with women, even when I was just starting my business, just getting mentorship from women that I would meet at networking events. And I realized that just other women helping me has been such a big help on my healing journey, uh, motivating me and community. So I wanted to build a community 
which I have on Ray Rituals, uh, healing for women by women. And I wanted to just help people firsthand as well and just offer what I can from the experiences that I've been through so that people don't have to go through the 10 years of, of healing that I've been through. And then I can just sort of, um, you know, compact it into a shorter time period and hopefully that, you know, they don't have to feel all of the pain that I went through. What are some of the services like to, to nail it down that, that you provide for people? So I do one-on-one coaching, which I just opened up again. And uh, I have a program now it's called The Healing Journey. And I also have a Sober and Thriving Masterclass, which is available. It's an evergreen program that really takes people from being just sober and surviving to actually sober and thriving. It's called Sober and Thriving. And then I have Re-Rituals, which is our membership space. And that's just uh, a space where we have live and on-demand breathwork practices, rituals from other healing practitioners, women. That's healing for women by women. And I mean, anyone is welcome in the space, but it's made really for women. But um, that's our membership space. That's $21 a month. And what else do I have? I have uh, my podcast as well, Power for Good Podcast which hopefully you'll join me on that podcast. Absolutely. Um, uh, after this, I owe you. Um, you, uh, you definitely have like the sunlight of the spirit just like crashing through you and shining through you. And like, I think it's really important that, you know, people that need the help take advantage of, of the tools you have out there. Um, the only request I have for you is that you keep it going. Like, you, 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 it's very clear to me that you're going to help a shitload of people. So it's one of those things like I appreciate talking to you I feel better than I did an hour ago. And I think other people will experience the same thing, hopefully after listening to this or maybe tapping into some of the stuff that you offer. So before I let you go, any, anything else you want to say? Or uh, Well, all of my offerings are available on my website, which is IamChristinaRay.com. That's R-A-E, ChristinaRay.com. And yeah, I'm happy to connect with anyone. Just DM me on my Instagram, ChristinaRayAlmeida. I'm sure you're going to put the links, but if anyone you know, is going through a hard time, has any questions about breath work or about any of the things we talked about, DM me. I always respond to people. And yeah, I'm just um, so happy to be here and happy that we had this conversation, even with our technical issues. Yeah, thank you so much. And let me know uh, any anytime you want me on the on the pod, I, I'd, I'd be happy to join. I'm going to get it going again soon. Take right. a little summer break. But yeah, I want to have you on. All right, let's rock and roll. Thank you so much, Christine. I appreciate your time. You're an angel, by the way. Thank you for dealing with all this bullshit. Seriously. It wasn't a practical joke. Thank you so much. All right. I appreciate you very much. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.